CB Insights presents a conversation with investor and Palantir co-founder Joe Lonsdale. The interviewer is the Financial Times' Robin Wigglesworth. This conversation was recorded June 20, 2017. For more information about CB Insights, visit cbi.vc. Have you heard of Alpha the Robot? I don't think I've heard of no. Alpha yet. Well, Alpha is one of the great um, slandered uh, people of uh, human history. So Alpha was a robot made by a British inventor called uh, Harry May in 1932. But at one point, Harry was doing some experiments with Alpha, and Alpha came alive and shot Harry May. This was in newspapers around the world. Machines come to life and try to kill their creators. It really captured this fear of machines. Now, it turns out that Alpha was entirely innocent. This was purely the result of the febrile imagination of, of, of May and, frankly, excitable journalists. So some things don't change. Uh, but Harry May had put a gun into Alpha's hand and shot himself by accident, or really just singed himself. But it, I, for me, that story really shows how we have, for a very long time, been concerned about how machine technology mm -hmm. is going to rise up against us. It, it reminds me of the chess-playing robots from, from Turkey in the 1860s. You know oh, about those? No, I haven't. Well, there's this robot that was beating everyone in chess that was designed as a big, really complicated mechanical contraption, and it turns out there was actually just a really small Turkish guy inside of it who was watching, and that's, that's where you get the phrase Mechanical Turk from now. Oh, okay. Science. See, this is going to win you guys the next game of Trivial Pursuit. Um, but should we, I mean, what I think is really interesting with this current wave uh, of technological advancement that we've had is that it feels different. I mean, you've yourself written that this next wave is going to change things quite dramatically, especially on the employment side. I want to dive into that a little bit. I mean, why do you feel this is going to be so much more disruptive than past waves? And why do you actually remain so optimistic this is going to create, again, more jobs than it destroys? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, probably, I'm probably amongst good company uh, as we're all kind of watching uh, all these jobs that are clearly going to be replaced at some point over the next 20, 30, 40 years, maybe sooner for some of them. Um, I, guess, I guess I'm probably somewhat unique amongst my peers uh, in that I'm very optimistic. I think, I think this is not, I guess I'd say this is not that different than the second industrial revolution. I, th I think if you look at America's history, we replaced about half of our jobs every 90 years for about 300 years now. And that's been a very good thing. It's, it's, it's ironic because it's just so funny. We're working on all these AI technologies, for example, in healthcare, and everyone's saying, oh, are you going to have enough jobs? And then you go to DC and you look at the numbers, and, and, and our country's going to be spending a fourth of all of its money on healthcare and it's going to go bankrupt if we don't make healthcare more productive. So, so I, mean, I mean, overall, the big challenge is how do we make these things more productive? And how do we do more with fewer people? And that's the only way society gets wealthier. And, and, and that's always been the case. But this one feels different in that I think we always have a tendency to think that you know, this wave is going to be uniquely disruptive. And clearly, you know, some of the cars and telephones, this were, we can, we're not talking of that level. But what feels unique is it's going to reach far deeper into the workforce. We're not just talking manual labor that people go from building houses with their hands to mm -hmm. sort of automating brick making. Uh, we're talking about, you know, fairly high level, high cognitive skill tasks are going to be automated to a large extent. That does feel quite different. And I 
I'm sure we're going to replace some new jobs, you know, making robots or, or, or computer scientists, but there's going to be clearly fewer of those than what we're losing from retail, from trucking, from lawyers. You know, sorry, lawyers, but you know, that's easily a skill that we can quite automate a big chunk of. We can automate some of it. I think, I think it's smart lawyer stuff. Listen, I, I, there's a lot of possible responses there. First of all, the, the horses to cars analogy is very interesting to me because a couple of my very good friends are building uh, these electric vertical takeoff and landing machines, which I think actually are a very big jump, similar from the horses to cars to cars to being able to very cheaply fly around much longer distance. So I, I, that, that's a separate topic. But I, I do think there's a lot of these things happening at once. I, I, think, I think stepping back, the, the main answer I'd give to this question is, is, is are there still going to be problems in the world that need to be solved? And, and I, th I think that's a really useful way to think about things, both as an entrepreneur and as a policymaker, is, is when you're building a company, you're saying, this thing is broken compared to how it should work. I can figure out how to make this work much better, or my friends and I, whatever, can figure out how to make this work much better. That's why I'm building this company. And, and a lot of jobs are going to always exist as long as there are things to fix. And I, I agree that if AI gets to the point where it's as smart of all of us, then we're going to have an existential crisis, right? Where, you know, if we get to the point where all of us are merging into a universal consciousness, it's probably not worth arguing about jobs. That's just a different world. But, but if we're not getting to that point and people are still a lot more advanced than AI, which I think will be the case for the next century, there's going to be a lot of things that people need to do to fix things in the world. And, and, I, and I think that human intelligence and the human mind is a lot richer than people give it credit for. And I think the vast majority of people will be able to train and get skills to, to do things that will help fix problems in the world. Okay, well, I mean, setting aside this sort of Skynet scenario, which I'm quite happy to, uh, <laughs> it still feels, I mean, I always return to, I remember when I went to journalism school, one of the teachers showed us this new cool trick. This website was going to make our job so much easier. We had a separate class in teaching us to use this thing called Google. And obviously now this is completely, you know, this is second nature to most of us, it's a verb. But it feels like the, the sort of new knowledge that we need to assimilate all the time is getting faster and faster. That, you know, what you study the first year of university might be obsolete by the third year of university. That the, it's just happening at a greater pace. Mm -hmm. and don't you worry about that? I mean, that. Well, you know, I think. Well, I think. I think what that means is you do need different models of education, right? Mm. And, and uh, no, not to go too much into that, but I think the incentives for education have to change. You need. You need the top schools, basically. Sorry about that. Just turn off. You need. You need the top schools, basically, incentivized to stay with students over time, teach them new skills, or you need to copy the Germans. And the companies themselves are going to have to start doing that for skilled labor. Like that. That. That's a big shift that's not done right at all in our country. But I'm. I'm really. I'm really quite optimistic that there's just. There's. There's not going to be not be problems to solve in the world, and if you can figure out a problem to solve, it turns out a market economy is, is going to employ people to solve it. Mm. So, I mean, it's too simplistic, but there's, there's a lot of versions of that. We, we have this piece we wrote in, in Wired uh, last month where we go over like 12 new futuristic jobs, and there, there's a lot of them. I actually think a lot of them, not to draw back to the topic at hand, but I think a lot of them have to do with finance as well, actually, in, in, in a lot of new ways. I think that ultimately finance is about allocating the world's resources more efficiently and more effectively, and it's about aligning incentives, and a lot of that's going to involve being able to use human insight about their friends and about their community on a small scale in order to align those incentives. And so there's actually value you can add just by being in a community and in order to help to help allocate resources better. So for example, for credit or risks or other things, you're, you're going to use data that just people have just by having basic human intelligence that computers are not going to be able to get without their help. So there's just all these things that you can do to kind of make the world work better by being a person as part of a community. So in the world of finance, it would be better in the future 
if your daughter becomes a private banker than a trader? <laughs> well, I guess, I guess what I'd say is I don't want her to become one of the million people who's part of the current middleware, not that these people yeah. don't have great lives, but I, I, think, I think if you look around and where are we spending most of our money in the, in the financial system in New York, it's all these people are actually part of some kind of very large, very intelligent, very bureaucratic middleware. That, that, that involves combining some kind of messy thing with people and technology to try to solve problems for these giant platforms. And so finance is a very, very inefficient, very expensive industry, and I would like to replace most of those jobs by replacing the, the platforms with better technology, um, which will drive more of the dollars to be spent on analysis, on human intelligence, and not as much on the kind of repetitive work that, frankly, most people still have to do if they're part of finance right now. But in the finance industry, just to stay on that point, uh, it's been interesting to see how many banks are now trying to desperately rebrand themselves as technology companies. I mean, to what extent do you think that is, I mean, and when I talk to people, they do seem to get this. They yep. agree that there is this middleware issue there. Yep. To what extent do you get the impression that they're going to be able to do it? How quickly or how slowly? Well, I think the more sophisticated, so first of all, if I was a big bank, I'd be doing that too. I, I'd wanna, I think Goldman Sachs has done a great job of attracting a lot of great engineers and their value is in large part because they are very good technologists. I think a lot of other banks are doing various versions of this and I'm, I'm very impressed by a lot of the technologists that run the tops of places like Morgan Stanley and Bank of New York and a lot of others. Um, I, 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 think, I think a lot of them are realizing that they need to say, here's what we're the best in the world at. We have a brand, we have certain areas we want to dominate, we have certain products, you know, certain networks, and then here's the things that we're not as good at that we're going to outsource. And, and you're seeing a lot of people start to outsource a lot, of, a lot of things, and I think that's where a lot of, frankly, the biggest opportunities are in financial technology right now, is to own these giant platforms that the banks and institutions no longer necessarily are going to run themselves. I mean, all these institutions grew up kind of like as their own cities with these giant pieces of things inside of them, and they're very aware they're going to have to rip some of those out and, and, and combine it with, the, with other people in the industry in order to make it more efficient. So I, I think that is a very big trend. But you think they're capable of that? Well, it's not so much that they're capable of doing it efficiently or effectively or as quickly as they should, because maybe they should have already done it, but they know they need to, and it's going to happen over the next five, you know, three, five, ten years, and the ones that are much slower at doing it are not going to be as competitive. Mm. But how many, you say that they've been actually done a good job of hiring some good technologists. One thing, I, when I talk to them, they keep complaining that, you know, that most younger people, certainly the top crowds coming out of Stanford, MIT, or, you know, IIT in India, would rather work at, you know, ABC or some of the companies in the crowd here rather than work at, you know, JP Morgan. No, for Global sure. Science. I mean, listen, at Palantir and Adapar and other, com other companies I invest in as well, we have an advantage that we have an equity culture run by top engineers, and the banks don't have that. Um, but, but I mean, I, I, I think it's possible, even within the structure of the bank, to recruit very good people, especially at the top. I mean, they could pay a lot more than I can afford to pay, and they have people at the top who I'd love to be able to hire, but I'm not going to pay those salaries in my companies. And the, the challenge those people have is not that they're not amazing and not that they're not good managers, is that they're dealing with 20, 30, 40-year-old legacy technology that's just a mess. It's, it's, just, it's just really, really hard to go in there and say, okay, we have these 72 systems from all these different banks we've bought over the years, and we've kind of like duct taped them together based on this thing we did in the early 90s, then we used more duct tape seven years later, took these things up, and now we want to innovate, and it's just, it just it t costs $100 million to do something that, frankly, from scratch or something like Adapar would cost less, you know, or imagine less to do it. 
The CB Insights machine intelligence platform synthesizes, analyzes, and visualizes millions of documents to deliver fact-based insights. It enables smart companies to predict trends, see competitor strategies, explore new markets, and reveal opportunities to capitalize on change. Visit cbi.vc today to learn more. Yeah, so, I mean, it's depending a bit on Adipar, we talked about this last year, but I mean, what stage is that in? I mean, how, how great are the inroads you're making into the sort of Sure, and, 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 and I know Eric was here a couple hours ago, so I don't yeah. want to bore you with too much on, on, on my obsession there. But, yeah. you know, I, 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 tend, I tend to think the most important things in financial technology are not general trends, but they're these, like, one-off one-off areas, and to me, the one-off area that I'm most passionate about is that kind of infrastructure platform. And so, so, so yeah, we've, we've worked, we're working now with a huge number of institutions compared to last year. It's growing. It's, it's one of my fastest-growing companies, and it's 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 it's, it's, it's really it's, it's really satisfying that we're finally starting to get a lot of institutions building on top of it rather than building on top of their old broken stuff. So it's, it's still early, but it's 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 growing very quickly here, and, and the the office here has expanded a lot. It's, it's fun to come here and see it. Okay. Well, one of the things also in this is slightly more public sphere, but one of the projects uh, that I found personally the most interesting is OpenGov. Uh, I mean, how, I mean, that must be really, if we think of like banks as being really slow and hard to reform, then local municipalities and states and cities was, must this, be an order of magnitude. This was always the funny thing you joke about, because because Palantir and other contexts worked in these markets as well. So OpenGov's kind of like a fintech thing in government. And whenever you talk to like the, like the people at the CIA or NSA or like the top spies, which are very bureaucratic organizations and frankly very wasteful of money at times, they'd always assume that the billionaires of the banks just had way better stuff and were so much more sophisticated. And they, they, were, had, you know, they could use whatever money they wanted and they'd be in, totally in charge. They could fire people. You can't fire people in the government. So they would just assume, wow, those banks must be so much cooler and better than us. And then the guys at the banks dealing with their mess would hear about like the really cool James Bond-like stuff at the NSA, and they'd be like, oh, wow, they must be way more advanced. And both sides, uh, the sad truth is both sides are pretty broken, is my experience. They're both very large institutions that, that, that startups probably cannot perform in a lot of ways. And so yeah, Op Op OpenGov's a fintech company that we built to help make government work better. We're in about 1,700 cities now and growing pretty quickly, and it's neat. We're helping them build their budgets and learn from each other. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's this general theme that you'll see in a lot of areas of the economy where these systems were mostly built 20, 30 years ago. They're very unwieldy. You get like black and white and green screens, and, and you just can't deal with modern data. So, it's, so, it's, so I, think, I think building the platforms that fix these things is where a lot of the value is. Yeah, but how much does that actually work in practice? I mean, when you say 1,700 cities, how much, how many of these cities or municipalities actually use it? I mean, because I've noticed there's a difference between, you know, you can put, you know, put the horse in front of water, but you can't force it to drink. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's, that's a perfectly fair question, especially when it comes to government. I guess normally when you ask if a business is paying for something, you assume it's using it. Government, it's, sometimes they'll decide to use it and the person will leave and yeah. there'll be someone else there. Um, I, th I think the, the key thing is to build it into its core processes. And so one of the things that come out, came out this year that I'm really excited about there is we're actually running the budget processes for a lot of these cities. So if you're doing your budget, you are using it. And it's the way you collaborate, it's the way you have context. Or we're actually doing something where every citizen can see exactly what they, uh, what, where their tax dollars are going and what they're going towards, which is a pretty fun thing. Most of you probably have never seen that in like, your local city. And, and exposing that very quickly, you end up seeing certain, certain changes get made sometimes if it's just something out of whack. Because I mean, if you, local, local state governments spend $7 trillion a year, I guess. And it's, it's, no one really knows, or not that many people know what the, where that money is going. So, so when you first expose it, when you first automatically compare it, say, oh, our city's spending you know, money in, in these 300 areas, and relative to other cities around us, these 10 areas were spending more than twice as much, 
uh, based on the model. And, and, and it looks like this area is being paid to like the former mayor's brother. I wonder if that's something is good there or yeah. not. And it's like you start to see these things pretty quickly and there's, there's context that can you know, make changes. Oh God, no. This, seeing how the sausage of local government gets made it's, scares the bejesus yeah. out of me. Yeah. Uh, but valuable. I mean, but, I mean, what's the potential here? Because I'm, I'm really interested because I think this is something that potentially could be quite cool. I mean, I don't like the idea of like we trying to turn like the government into a, sort of a, a corporate balance sheet because I think they're just fundamentally different issues. But clearly, local governments that don't have the technology or the scope and they're very uh, 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 there must be lots of potential there. Yeah, I don't know about corporate balance sheet, but at least a raw-run institution that uses things like metrics and transparency and, and context and all these radical, radical, radical new things, ideas, yeah. right? And, and, it's, it's, uh, and in order to do that, you need to get the technology in there. I mean, t a lot of times technology is, is an excuse to transform process, right? Like even early on at Palantir, when you go, if you go to the CIA as like a 22-year-old and say, I have a better idea for how you should run things around here, they, they, you know, they pat you on the head and go on your day, or, or maybe they just yell at you to get out. But if you go there and you have something that's, that's a better technology that, that enables a better process, then you actually can start to get somewhere through iteration and stuff. And that's what a lot of this is with the government is there's clearly better processes we can all sit down and agree they should be using. You can only really get that to happen sometimes by enabling it with, with the technology. Mm. And how does this fit into some of your thoughts around smart enterprise then? Yeah, so, so, so I mean, that, that, that when we talk about that wave, what we're discussing is that a lot of the first venture funds, because I'm a venture capitalist these days, a lot of the first venture funds were formed by the people who built the chip companies, the semiconductor companies back in the 60s and 70s. And, and I think the reason a lot of these things were formed is that for the first time all around American industry, all these businesses had computers and they wanted to do things with them. And so you, these guys started funds in order to build and invest in people building software to run kind of the base of these industries. So if you go to a trucking company or a bank or all this other stuff, a lot of this stuff came from the 70s, 80s, early 90s. And that was the original enterprise software wave. And most of that enterprise software was about these very linear things. It was about doing your payroll, doing your inventory, A to B to C, a lot of green screens and black and white screens on DOS. Um, the smart enterprise wave is kind of a redux where for the first time, thanks to cloud and big data internet starting about seven, eight years ago, we went back and started replacing a lot of these older systems and, and we're helping do nonlinear things is the idea. Mm. But it sounds exciting, but how do you actually, I mean, for me, whenever I talk to anybody in the technology world, there's this, always this, oh, all the, the potential, all the stuff we can do. But you know, generally, I always think that you know, anybody who has a simple answer doesn't really understand how complex a question can be. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you ever kind of sit there? Have you had a situation where you've gone into a situation where you thought, well, we can just do A, B, and C, and you realize it's a lot more complicated? Yeah, you I don't think, even have the right question to start with. Yeah, I, th I, think, I think most of these companies succeed based on creating the right process of iteration. So you kind of say, here's how the world should work probably, and you talk to people and you get a really good view of that, and that's kind of where you want the company to be in three years, but really it takes 15 years, by the way, but you just have to fool yourself it's gonna be there in three years, because otherwise it's impossible to get yourself to start these things. And, 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 and then you kind of get a bunch of really good people together and give them the right incentives, and then you begin this process of iteration. That, and and you're, you're, I, 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 think, I think it's all about iterating towards the right answer. It's never about, really knowing what the path is going to be ahead of time, because you're right, the, the world's just a very complicated place and you just constantly respond to new things. Mm, yeah. But what, what gets you excited then? I mean, what are the, I mean, Palantir, you're still an advisor there, but you kind of step away from that. Adipar, clearly you're excited about. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very excited about Adipar and OpenGov. Um, I, I guess the one new area I'd say that's very important right now 
in the world of Silicon Valley. The big, the big question is always, the big question is always what's possible now that was not possible five years ago. And so, so you have a lot of mid-stage smart enterprise companies that are very exciting and they're starting to transform, you know, all origination and data systems and risk and insurance and things that I think are really, really, really good to fix. And I, I think the one new thing that's possible is, is, is a lot of the stuff going on with life science IT. So, so I think that's probably the biggest breakthrough in the last three or f two, three, four years is our ability to quantify all these things about about cells and about DNA and to be able to edit DNA for the first time and to be able to do that at scale accurately and be able to understand you know, what, what effects it has. And so, so, so I, th I, th I think a lot of the value creation so that value in the next decade is going to be getting to scale, scale smart enterprise, but I think life science IT is the other one where you're, you're seeing just a lot of amazing things. Can you make a concrete example? Sure. So for example, you have an, on your body, like everyone else, about 10 times as much bacteria as you have cells. There's 10 times as many more bacteria. And, and, and by sequencing what bacteria is where, for example, in your gut, we can, you, you, you learn a lot about your health and a lot about whether or not you're likely to be gaining or losing weight based on certain foods, whether or not you have certain types of just, you know, maybe you have, maybe you have a stomach ache. It could be a bad diet. It could be an inflammatory syndrome be able to detect that basically within the same day by, by sequencing the microbiome is pretty cool because it's, it's a big data problem, right? Because mm. so, so one of our companies, for example, has 150,000 people it's sequenced to measure the records against. And, and you see it becomes a data problem because we can say, oh yeah, 99.999% of people with this ratio of these bacteria actually has this issue. And, and the bacteria are so integrated into how your body works that it turns out that the information signal is really strong. So, so, so there's a lot of stuff like that going on. Oh, that's quite cool. Yeah, I remember talking to a biologist turned quant hedge fund manager, and he thought financial markets were a lot simpler than some of the bio, at least in the big data side. Mm -hmm. um, financial markets aren't that complicated. I mean, that, 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 that's what I love about, I mean, they are complicated. Well, yeah, but, they evolve, but, I but, think. But they evolve, no, exactly, they evolve, and they're not that complicated. They're a system like anything else, and they're a system that logically reflects like how the world works. And this, this is what I think a lot of people miss when they, when they focus on finance. It's always about these new trends or whatever, but, but I mean, really, Really, what's going on is this: like, there's there's a system that's naturally evolving and is trying to use whatever data, whatever data it can to do what it's doing better. And, and 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 all of a sudden, in the last five or ten years, there's a lot more data and a lot more data sources, a lot more channels to, to do that. So so it's it's, it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty straightforward. But but there's still a lot of opportunity. Future of FinTech 2018 is a one-of-a-kind gathering of the world's largest financial institutions, best FinTech startups, and most active venture investors. Join us June 19 through 21 in New York City and get the latest on blockchain, wealth tech, insurance, lending, and a whole lot more. Visit cbi.vc slash events and use the code CBPOD to get $500 off your ticket. I actually went to a CBA Insights conference earlier this year, and somebody was uh, talking about how you VCs weren't trying to solve the, well, in his view, the really big problems. That's the so really, well, you can probably guess. Uh, he was uh, he was fairly uh, outspoken about this. But his, I mean, life sciences sounds like that. Those are some big, you know, quite literally life. Those are some. Those are some. Solved. Those are some. But how big close problems. are we? Those are some, no, I mean, listen, there's all, right now we're rolling out all sorts of tools. I mean, there's, in the lab, there's, I mean, I'll give you another example, maybe it's more exciting for you, like, that you can, you can program cells that you couldn't do before, so you can literally, you can literally take, you can literally take something and you can, and you write a programming code using DNA and you can get a virus to spread it to all the cells in an area. So you can take a mouse that has cancer, and as I say, ovarian cancer, and you can program every cell to say, check if I have these two things that mean I have ovarian cancer, and if so, do these four things that tell the immune system to kill me. 
and you can get that program to every cell, and so they all run it, and the ones that have a variant cancer get killed by, by the immune system in their, in, in their cure. So there's things like this that have only been happened in the last year that now have to be tested in people, of course. And, but the, th the thing I realized is, is about that area, not to go on about it too much, but it's basically, it's not just about the breakthroughs, it's about like, getting the FDA to approve them, and it's about getting the business models to scale them out. Because we, we've cured lots of for new forms of cancer in the last couple of years, but there's going to be a five or ten years before anyone sees it. Yeah. Is there any human volunteers for the first round of testing here? Yeah. I mean, it must be you believe in technology. The actual, right? the, the, the cool thing I saw the other, the other day is we're trying to take dogs that get cancer and then make them tested, which is good because they're going to die otherwise, and so we can use, use people's dogs, which okay. are very similar to people for it. So that, was, okay. that was pretty clever. Interesting. Yeah. No, but that's, that's quite exciting. I mean, it's, turning back to the, the, the future of work, as it were, I mean, clearly, you know, doctors, high cognitive skill, high education, I mean, to what extent will we be able to automate a lot of that side of things. I mean, the medical side is, you know, there's lots of data and, you know, we've already gotten to the point where, you know, machines can make some simple. Yeah, this is, this is, this is where, again, I think it's more about the process. So I think, I think if we're all honest about the role of, like, the best thinkers in finance or about, the do about doctors, there's a lot of things that, 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 where you only need the people for exceptions or for the really hard strategy parts, and then otherwise you don't need the very top thinker. You need someone who's, a, who, you know, in a doctor's case, you need someone who's a nurse. Mm. Right, so, 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 so most of the time your doctor is seeing you, you don't really need the doctor to be seeing you. You need someone who's looking at you and talking to you and makes you feel, makes you yeah. feel like there's someone there. But then, and then, and then and an expert system plus a nurse would do most of it, and the doctor would handle the exceptions. This, is, this actually, this reminds me of something in finance that I think is a really important point, actually, is that a lot of this innovation is something that all of us can kind of agree on. Like, of course you don't need the doctor to see you every single time. You just need to make sure that the system flags it if there's any chance that they're not absolutely sure about what's going on. And it's the same thing in a lot of this financial innovation where, where it's just not going to happen here because the regulations are very, very clear about where they are, right? So I, th so I, th I, th I think this is one of the things that really, really almost, it's exciting but also very frustrating to me. It's very obvious that the way insurance works, that the way credit works should be completely transformed. And it's probably going to happen in places like Southeast Asia and Africa. It already is happening there first. And, and, and it's really it's going to be tested out there. Maybe eventually we'll change our regulations to allow it. But, but that, that, I mean, it is a big problem in the U.S. right now where a lot of innovation can't happen here because we've locked things in. Like so, I mean, how so, I mean, clearly the U.S. is a more regulated environment than you know, Southeast Asia. But what concrete examples? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give you I'll something give, stifling in. I'll give you I'll give you an example that, that was like quite frustrating to me. So we were looking a lot. So insurance is actually this really powerful thing that aligns incentives to help everyone if it's done correctly. Insurance is a very very useful thing. So for example, if you're a construction company, you can buy insurance for workers' comp, and the workers' comp insurance could change your pricing based on the safety you're using. And as you all know, there's a lot of new things going on in Internet of Things and other ways of measuring and watching with video and seeing what the processes are. So you can actually like very, very cheaply as an insurance company imagine putting in some sensors, putting in some cameras, watching the sites and verifying that they held certain safety standards and therefore you would be able to charge them less for their insurance and everyone wins overall. Less people, like right now I think 5,000 people I think in, in a year kill themselves in these construction things. And, you know, it's a problem, right? It's very dangerous. And 
and so this is great, and we were thinking of, you know, we start companies sometimes, so we were gonna start a FinTech insurance comp, comp company, and we had some channels we'd mapped out, and then all of a sudden the Illinois State Legislature passes this thing and says, you know, it's not fair, these companies are really big, and they're tricking these other companies, and so they're, they're charging them too much for insurance, so we're gonna just lock in the insurance rates that are to make them fair for everyone. And then California said, oh, that sounds great too, we wanna be fair too, so we're gonna pass that too. And now I'm thinking, well, that's great, you tried to make it fair for everyone, but I was gonna come in and charge less than them and, and innovate and save lives at the same time, and you didn't let me do that because you just fixed pricing because you're socialist. Sorry, I shouldn't say that last part. But anyway, you have to be really careful what rules you put in place. No, I can tell you as, yeah. as a Norwegian, obviously socialist is the first word I associate <laughs> with the US. I'm very pro-Norway. Yeah, well, you know, go Norway. Uh, but so do you think there's a real danger we actually see more innovation migrate to more permissive I do I mean this is a big this is a big issue listen I'm not I'm, I'm not I'm not a, a big fan of a lot of things going on in DC right now it's quite a mess but I do very strongly agree with the desperate need to reduce we have over a million rules right now in the federal regulatory system and the states have a lot of their own as well and, and we, we, we need to be very careful, especially in finance. And there's a very good motivation to help protect people in finance, but you've, you've actually accidentally helped the big banks kill all the small banks, right? And you've accidentally created yeah. moats for all of our big financial institutions, which make it very hard on all of us who are trying to build companies, uh, because you, know, you have to sp spend $10 million a year on lawyers in order to do certain things. So, so yes, you definitely have to be very careful, and we have reduced innovation in finance a lot, thanks to that. And that's a big battle is can we reduce those things or, or do the crony capitalists who run the big institutions win and basically and get to have a very regulated society that makes it harder to just disrupt them. Well, I, I totally agree with regulation uh, to a certain extent helps the big banks and we've seen that and it hasn't ended too big to fail. But I mean, we've seen this huge explosion of innovation, I feel, in the financial technology space, even as the regulation has come up. I mean, there are, there are winners and losers. Mm -hmm. But I don't think, I mean, I don't look at, I mean, look at this room and feel that, you know, things are being held back enormously. No, I think, I think, listen, the world, there's a lot of new things that are possible right now, and there's a lot of great innovation, a lot of new things to be built, and I'm very bullish overall. I'm, I'm a venture capital investor. I'm putting all my wealth into, into how things are gonna be built that are different in the next five or 10 years. That said, uh, I think there's a, there's a big gap even between where we could be going and, and where we are going because of the regulation, both in the life science area and in the finance area. So it's, it's, to me, it's a very big issue to get right. Okay, cool. Well, you know, I mean, Norway's open to entrepreneurs as well. We need to. If you have a better them. regulatory system, even though people talk about it being socialist, it's a better regulatory. No, system. no, it's actually yeah. it's not quite as. Yeah, you know, I pay more tax in New York than I did in, did in Norway. So, there you uh, go. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I think we'll end there. But uh, yeah, Joe, fantastic. Thank you, it was really interesting. Yeah. Thanks for listening to us. Insights, we use machine intelligence to synthesize, analyze, and visualize millions of documents and give you fast, fact-based insights. We give companies the power to take control, make better decisions, and capitalize on change. Learn more about us at cbi.bc.